This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome along to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can get brand new episodes to your chosen device every Thursday. All you need to do is subscribe. Now this week we're starting a three-part mini-series on the feasts that were enjoyed at English heritage sites through the ages. This series is brought to you by Coat at Home, who offer a wide range of luxury chilled meals and French wines delivered direct to your door from the kitchens of the Coat Brasserie restaurants. To get us started, we're stepping back in time to learn about the grand banquets that took place at Lullingston Roman Villa in Kent. Joining us to give a flavour of what a Roman feast at Lullingston would have looked and tasted like is Curator of Collections and Interiors, Catherine Bedford. Hello. Hello. Let's start by taking a look at the history of Lullingston Roman Villa itself, first of all. When was it first built and who lived here? The earliest evidence we have of a building here was certainly constructed by AD 100, though possibly it was actually constructed as early as AD 80, so within sort of 40 years of the Roman invasion of Britain. There is actually some possibility that there was occupation at the site before that, but we can't be certain. And that first building was what's called a winged corridor house, which is a fairly common type of early villa that was found in Britain. We don't really know exactly who lived there in that early phase. And it's something that's going to come up again and again as you go through the history of Lullingston is we're not entirely certain the extent to which it was permanently occupied as opposed to maybe being a a retreat from somebody coming down from London. It may well have been the centre of its own working farm, but in that case there are buildings that haven't yet been found. You mentioned that um, this might be a retreat at later stages in, in history in Roman Britain. If people were coming down, as you say, from London, whereabouts actually is Lullingston in relation to London? Okay, Lullingston is in North Kent. It's in what's going as the Darrant Valley, the River Darrant. So really, it's um, it's a very easy journey from London. It's something that could quite happily have been done within a day. So that's the early phase of the building initially. But how does it evolve over the following centuries? By the latter part of the second century, so possibly by AD 150, but it may actually have been slightly later than that, the corridor house has been substantially enlarged. It's now got a bath suite and there's sort of other sort of circular building, there's a circular building that's sort of nearby it, possibly a shrine. So it's been substantially altered and actually it's quite difficult to see in some places what the original house looked like. Then again, later on, there are periods of building works, particularly in the mid-4th century, where the famous Lullingston mosaics were constructed and also a Christian church house was built on one side at that stage. So it's a building that's constantly changing over the centuries. We've got many, many layers of occupation here. Yes, because of course the Romans did occupy Britain for 300... Not quite 400 years. Not quite 400 years, no. It's normally thought of as thinking of it in terms of 42 AD through to around 410-ish. Now I understand that there might have been a future emperor, someone who actually ran the Roman Empire might have actually lived at Lullingston Roman Villa. There is that suggestion, though when we say Roman emperor, he was only actually emperor for 87 days. So the extent to which uh, he he was running the empire is, is possibly slightly dubious. 
it's a gentleman called Publius Helvius Pertinax and busts of both him and his father were found at Lullingston as well as a Cornelian intaglio. So that's one of the small oval stones that's set into a ring that had his seal. And he was governor of Britannia from AD 185-186 and then went on to become emperor, as I say, for 87 days in AD 193. So the fact that you've got these sort of couple of different pieces of evidence that suggest he lives in Lullingston. He and his father are in Lullingston. The major building works of the mid to late second century at Lullingston are occurring at the same time that he and his father potentially are active in the country. So it suggests that the fact that you're getting building works done then suggests that there's somebody involved who is not only wealthy, but is wanting to use the site in different ways. So it kind of ties up to suggest that probably he may have been involved with the site. The fact that he was also governor of Roman Britain is also quite a coup, isn't it, really, for, for heritage tourist attraction? That's, that's yeah. quite an important thing to talk about. Yeah, and, and actually for, for him as well, his father was a freedman. His father had been enslaved. So the fact that he has this very, very high position is interesting in itself. Yeah, so a real sort of uh, rags to riches story. He's really climbed the greasy pole of Roman society and eventually ended up as emperor. Why did he only reign as emperor for 87 days? He was murdered by the Praetorian Guard. So yeah, Roman emperors did not always last. And he was emperor briefly in a period of extreme instability. I see. And what's the Praetorian Guard exactly? They're the people that are supposed to be guarding the emperor. They were in a very powerful position. They are, they are the people that are supposed to be guarding the emperor, but he is not the only emperor who was murdered by them. What's the other theory then about who the site belonged to, apart from this particular governor who uh, later became emperor? OK, so we've got the possibility that this is a working farm that's being lived in, in locally. We know that Kent, North Kent in particular, has a large number of villa sites within it. It's a very fertile area. So we don't have the evidence of other buildings around it that would give us really a clear indication of whether it's being used in that way. And what about the other rooms and features of the villa that it had? You've mentioned that it started off with this corridor type design, which is obviously the most basic version. Then it sort of expanded beyond that. But yes, so if you it, were to give us a tour uh, <laughs> in I, our heads, what would it look okay. like? Imagine this first house has a veranda along the front and behind the veranda is a series of rooms with the corridor, uh, sort of about four or five rooms with sort of a corridor behind them linking that. And then either side, we've got wings. On one side, there is a, what's known as the deep room, which is possibly from its origin, some kind of cult space for worship. On the other side of that is where the bathhouses were built. And then... These central spaces become gradually adapted and changed over time. And in particular, at its peak in the mid-4th century, we've got this very large central space, which comprises of two rooms, effectively. You've got a big square room with a mosaic on it. And then sort of raising from that, about 10 centimetres higher, is a semicircular annex that extends into what was the corridor in the original house. So you've got kind of these little corridor spaces on either side of it and corridors round that central space. But again, we're coming through a sort of veranda portico area from the outside world. And as its peak as well as 
this large sort of central entertaining space, one of the really interesting features at Lullingston is above what was that earlier cult deep room, they construct a house church, a very explicitly Christian church. The wall paintings on it have a number of different Christian symbols, including Cairo's, and those wall paintings can now be seen in the British Museum. They're on permanent display there. But it's it's really interesting that we don't know the precise dates, but around a similar sort of time to this big mosaic depicting classical Roman pagan scenes, we have this construction also of this very explicitly Christian church. And that clearly shows that um, the culture in Roman Britain is changing. The culture within the Roman world in general, by this point, Christianity has become the official religion of the Roman Empire. Well, let's move on to talk about the main subject, really, which is food and how the people who would be living at Lullingston Roman Villa would be enjoying the fruits of the the local land. So let's talk about the feasts that would have been hosted at places like Lullingston. Do we know a lot about Roman feasts? Well, the Romans were very keen on public eating. They have this term convivium, meaning living together, and they have a number of different types of activities that can potentially come under the English word feasts. So um, I'm going to make a mild distinction here between feasts and banquets just for convenience sake. And the Romans use grand public feasts that are part of sort of big ceremonies, part of big festivals. And in a place like Lullingston, they also have what I'm just going to call banquets, as say, for convenience, which are much smaller private affairs and these are really really important within Roman culture they're opportunities for networking they're opportunities for display and as a result they appear in a number of different types of sources which gives us potential information about what happened during them there's literary sources there's drawings of them that appear in wall paintings and on pieces of equipment used in food and drink sort of bowls and plates and things like that There's descriptions of them that appear within accounts of various sort of emperors. I mean, there's also archaeological evidence of the buildings themselves and evidence of surviving food and drink. So when we're talking about Roman feasts at any site, we're kind of pulling together all of this information. The bigger general information that we have about Roman society as a whole, what we know about Roman Britain, which obviously is slightly more limited, And then specifically things that we can maybe say about a particular site in terms of the archaeology of that individual location. It's a really, really interesting topic for which there is a huge amount of information out there. Roman cookery books then, did they actually exist? Do those texts survive? Yes, there's one really interesting book that's either called Apicius or the De Re Culinaria, which translates as on the subject of cooking. Apicius may be an individual that it was associated with, there are a couple of different potential Apicius's, but that name may actually also just have come to mean Gormand and become a title. So we're not entirely certain who wrote it. What survives is probably sort of fifth century, a combination of a lot of different earlier texts. But it is basically a cookery book in the modern sense. It's got sections for poultry, for seafood, for meats, for vegetables. And the recipes are ones that, if you go looking for it, can be reconstructed to an extent that they could be used and cooked in the modern kitchen. From the point of view of us talking about Lullingston, whilst being very, very interesting, it does have limitations in its use because it's very much focused on the wealthy of Italy and the Mediterranean. So someone in Lullingston 
they are clearly wealthy if they own Lullingston Villa. They are clearly Romanized. They're likely to be using Roman style cooking and food techniques, but they may not have access to all of the ingredients that appear in Apicius, particularly some of the more outrageous ones like flamingo and parrot. So this is an upper class yes, culinary much so. text, effectively. And it may well be that someone at Lullingston could have been well enough off to have a professional cook that would have been familiar with Apicius, but we don't actually know the extent to which it was used within Britain other than that. So if the owner had a cook who knew those recipes, he may well have used those recipes, but all we can really say is that it's a useful source that needs to be added into the mix. How did Roman food and feasting change during the occupation of Britain at places like Lullingston? Well, we actually have a suggestion that the introduction of the Roman style of feasting was particularly an aspect of the Roman invasion itself. Tacitus actually mentions that, quote, the elegance of banquets was among the Roman customs that seduced the Britons into accepting slavery or uh, to Rome. There's certainly a number of suggestions within other Roman sources that the Celts, the, the previous people within Britain, are eating and dining differently and the Romans are bringing in new civilised ways of doing things in terms of how they eat, how they banquet, the reclining rather than the sitting or squatting. We don't know exactly how much change happened within the most, most of society, whether most people are still essentially eating in similar ways to what they were before. But certainly it's somewhere like Lullingston, this is very much Romanized society and they are following Roman fashions, which means that how they eat will change over those sort of three and a half, four centuries of Roman rule. And we know, for example, within Roman feasting in the early first century, within a, a villa setting, it's very, very much small groups. But even by the later first century, the buildings in Pompeii often have much larger dining spaces, suggesting that more people are being invited to banquets than had been the case earlier. So even within that first century, you're seeing changes in fashion, changes in dining within the Roman world. It sounds as though there's more food to go around, hence the larger parties. Well, it may also have been about changing ways in which people are interacting at these events. So very early on, the traditional bank Roman banqueting style has three couches around a central table and each of those three couches holds three people. So you've literally got a maximum number of nine and they are going to sit in a very particular order in terms of how important they are. They are then all reclining in towards this one table and they're all very close to each other. You're within sort of a metre of everybody else in terms of your face. You're very, very close to them. But in these larger spaces, you've got more couches, more people, and they're much further away from each other. They're not going to be interacting in anything like the same way. They're potentially being entertained more. Mm. There's a bigger space in the centre. So what the banquets are doing potentially is changing quite a lot through this change in the architecture of the dining room. So just in the way that you've described this banqueting style, this reclining and dining type scenario, is it almost like everyone is facing inwards, lying down? Yes. So I want you to imagine a four-sided room. Three of those sides have got couches on them. There's a table in the centre and the fourth side is effectively open for things to be brought in and put onto that table. Each of those three couches then has three people lying diagonally across it. So all of their heads are inwards and all of their feet are outwards in a sort of fan shape. 
and the most important person is going to be in the middle of the central couch and then it's very very clearly defined who is going to be in each of those locations based on whether you're likely to have your back to people whether uh, and, and that's so certain of those seats are easier to speak to other people from Mm-hmm. So although it, they're all close together, they can all speak easily, it's still actually quite a formal space. You're not just all sitting down wherever you feel like it. This is the typical image of Roman eating. And did it ever change during the Roman period? Was it always a reclining and dining scenario? The reclining is something the Romans got from the Greeks. And in the Greek world, they're reclining. it's very much a masculine thing. Men are reclining. For the Romans, women recline too, though there's a certain amount of suggestion that particularly older women or some women may sit to eat as sort of part of being proper and correct. And there's actually a bit of a pushback from some Romans as well in terms of the idea of reclining being a bit too luxurious and proper Roman austerity requires you to sit upright. Cato, for example, shows his stoicism by sitting at a table to eat and reclines only to sleep. But reclining has a lot of symbolism associated with it. You are relaxed completely when you're reclining, whereas when you're sat up, you're only partially relaxed. So by reclining on a couch, while somebody stands next to you and serves you, there's a very big power play being made there. It's a statement. So reclining is something that is done by gentlemen. It's something that is taught. So a young man learns to recline and becomes an adult when he reclines. It's not something that a slave would do. It's not something that a servant would do. That sort of reclining to dine is a class statement, not just a Roman statement. What about the effect on digestion? Because if you're eating quite a lot of food and you're in that position for a couple of hours, I can't imagine that's great for your body. Well, you're lying on one side, resting on one arm, using one hand to eat. So the Romans don't sort of sit there with a a knife and fork. Most of the food is actually being eaten by hand or with sort of small spoons to get out certain shellfish and things. Sauces, bread's being dunked into sauces. And on these small tables with sort of nine people around, there's not a lot of space everybody to have their own place setting, everybody to have their own plate that they're putting food onto. So meals are happening potentially quite slowly. A single dish comes out, everybody eats that, then the next dish, then the next dish. And that kind of procession of food over the course of a meal spreads things out and probably helps significantly with digestion as well. But as I said, there is almost also this element of being taught. You have to learn how to do it. There isn't an expectation that everybody can recline in this way and it may well be that part of what's happening with the food at the banquet is that those types of foods are easier to digest certainly soft foods are most highly prized and the most highly admired and these are the sorts of things that are being eaten in a banquet setting as well how long would these feasts have taken then Again, that's the thing that's difficult to say because of the evidence available to us. Certainly, we know that large public feasts could be going on for sort of 10 hours. I would not assume that a feast in a private villa setting like Lullingston would be doing that. But certainly, in the same way as a large meal today, sort of, say, Christmas or something, you could potentially have your feast lasting for a couple of hours, particularly if you've got entertainment going on as well as food and sort of the gaps between courses. Regarding courses then, how many would there have been in total? 
Well, a standard meal has three courses that we'd be familiar with today and that you've got a first course that's kind of a similar idea to a starter or a sort of horse d'oeuvre. It's small, it's prepared vegetables, you might have shellfish, eggs, things like that. Then your main course is your second course and that's the meal proper where you're having sort of your roasted meats and sort of sausages and things like that. And then your third course, which kind of, it could be desserts in the modern sense, instead of small cakes and sweets and pastries and fruits, but it can also be another savoury course. But particularly that will be inclined towards the soft issues that I just mentioned, kind of shellfishes and things like that. And each of those three courses, as I mentioned, is not necessarily coming out at once. It could be multiple smaller dishes. And actually there is some suggestion that knowing how to eat the dishes and in what order to eat the dishes is part of being a polite, educated, upper-class Roman. And in the same way as when people think about, say, a really fancy Victorian meal and you have to know which knife and fork to use, a Roman attending a banquet has to know which of the dishes that are being presented to him to eat in what way and in what order. It's part of that indicating that you are the right sort of person is having that sort kind of knowledge. Did the banqueting style change over time? In terms of how the room and the space, yes. In terms of the food that's being eaten, not massively that I'm aware of, but it may just be that I'm unaware of it. The evidence that I have seen doesn't talk about massive changes in recipes. So you have certain factors that are key to Roman dialing, sort of over and over for the entire period. Things like liquorman, sort of a fish sauce, fish paste, and the particular keenness for shellfish is very much common to all Roman dining. So if we're looking at Lullingston Roman Villa particularly, and it's the period of the governor's tenure there, assuming we he definitely lived there, or at least spent some time there, who would have been guests at one of his banquets or feasts? Well, the chances are that it would have been other high-class members of Roman society. So given the location of Lullingston in North Kent and in the Durant Valley, there's a decent chance that it would have been people from London within part of the big sort of official capital, and also people who were the owners and residents at the other Durant Valley and North Kent villas. We know, for example, say that in the Durant Valley there were around that time about seven other villas so that's a large number of potential guests of a similar social standing living really quite close as well as also as I said the people in London who are part of the official ruling class. And in terms of servants how many servants would be required to serve at a banquet? Where we have evidence specifically of servants it's often in a moralising context, for Seneca, for example, talks about crowds of servants stood around watching their masters eat and talk. But he's drawing a picture in part to criticise this behaviour. So we know it must have been happening, or he wouldn't have been criticising it, but he may have been over-exaggerating the number of different roles involved. There are also sort of epithets that are used for real-life attendance in various sources that suggest there are these very specific tasks being carried out by different people. So you might have one person who's ladling out the wine while another is in charge of the wine jar, while another is physically serving the wine in the cup. You've then also got servants or slaves who are bringing forward the dishes, 
ones who are bringing forward water as well. I mean, if you're imagine if you're eating with your hand all the time, you need to clean that hand fairly regularly, otherwise you're going to get contamination between dishes. So certainly at a minimum between each course, the hand is being cleaned in water that's being brought forward by servants or slaves. So we can be fairly confident that there were multiple servants involved in any feasting situation, possibly even more than there were guests taking part in the banquet. While a banquet was happening, how would children have been catered for? Would they have been part of the banquet or would they have dined separately? How would that have worked? For the most part, in a reclining banquet situation, yes, children would not have been present because they've not yet sort of attained that level of society. When you're talking about the bigger feasts that are happening, it's possible that children could have been present at those. Certainly, we know that not everybody was necessarily reclining. As I say, some women and indeed some men may choose to sit. And it's possible that children could have been involved in those sorts of settings. When they're not taking part in banquets, the children and also servants and slaves would be eating probably less lavish food. You'd be getting less of the soft dishes, the shellfish and things like that. There are different types of bread even that the Romans use. So you've got a bread that's made with really good wheat flour and made in a mould that might be what appears at a banquet setting. But then you've got breads that have been made with sort of bran and very little flour that might be given to slaves or even to dogs. So everybody is potentially having porridges. Everyone would be eating a lot of vegetables. So children very much it's going to depend on their class what they're getting but it's probably not going to be as lavish as the full-on banquet do you think it's likely that children would have attended lullingston roman villa at all or do you think it was a, an adults only space the space that we have at lullingston that what i mentioned earlier the rectangular central space with the semicircular apse behind it that's a very specific dining style that originally grew from outdoor dining and by the late third and into the fourth century is being seen in houses within the provinces, though it's still not common. Lullingston is unusual in that we've got this survival. And in this way of eating, the semicircular apse is actually effectively the dining room. You've got a semicircular couch rather than the three couches that I talked about earlier. You've now got a single semicircular couch that everybody is reclining on. And then the large rectangular space you're looking out of is effectively a performance space. The food is processed across it to you. Entertainment may take place there. It's possible that in some cases you might have had other seating, other tables into that space. But really, you're looking at a dining area that can only actually take about eight or nine people in terms of the evidence that we specifically have for Lullingston. Obviously, more people would have been eating, but they might have been eating in other spaces and we don't necessarily have the information to know exactly where it was. So I would say that if we're imagining a banquet at Lullingston in the room that we know was there and was used for banquets, I would assume that children probably wouldn't be present. You mentioned earlier, Catherine, that um, Roman culture obviously changes, particularly with the introduction and the formal approval, shall we say, of Christianity as the default religion in the Roman Empire. So did that change the feasting at uh, places like Lullingston Roman Villa? Well, it certainly potentially changed the occasions on which feasts took place in terms of a move from a pagan to a Christian calendar. But Christianity quite famously adopted elements of 
pagan culture in order to be more accepted. There's some suggestions particularly about Easter. And we know from the church fathers, their, their writings, that Christian funerary feasts were very, very similar to the traditional funerary feasts from their pagan predecessors. So Christianity is certainly going to make some changes, but it's not a wholesale sweeping away of what had been before. You should still think of the later Romans, the Christian Romans, in much the same way in terms of the ways in which they're choosing to eat. When do you think the last feast could have taken place at Lullingston? Well, Lullingston actually burnt down. There was a fire at some point in the late 5th century. We can't say exactly when. So the last feast, I'm going to say, is some point, probably early 5th century, prior to that fire taking place. Are there any other English Heritage Roman sites where feasting would have taken place that you can think of? Well, absolutely, because there would have been some element of feasting probably at pretty much any Roman site we have. Um, I think we mentioned earlier Richborough as the point at which Roman invasion took place, but also it became a town. So sort of, you might well have found public feasts taking place there and other towns like Roxeter. And then obviously the Hadrian's Wall sites as well. In terms of villas, Lullingston is the best that English heritage has to offer, but we do have other smaller villa sites and remains around the country as well. And Roxeter has the remains of townhouses and things where you could expect some level of feasting to take place. What are your thoughts about the Romans' influence on food and feasting in Britain? Well, it's an interesting question because, of course, when the Romans left, so much of their culture did leave as well in terms of there, there was an awful lot of things over the next few centuries that didn't continue and sort of came back later, including Christianity. But there is a suggestion the Romans brought with them a number of different types of animals and vegetables that we now think of as almost indigenous to Britain, things like rabbits and pheasants and guinea fowls that they may well have had a continuing presence and continued to have been eaten within the country. So what was being eaten may have had a more permanent change than the ways in which it was being eaten. Say you were the host or the, the chef at Lullingston Roman Villa and you had to put together a menu for the governor and dignified guests. From your own personal preference and your own personal tastes, what, what would you put on the menu? Well, I'm a very bad Roman. I don't really like seafood. So I would have to, because I'm putting on this feast for this potential governor, I am definitely going to have to go against my own preferences there because he is going to want seafood. He's going to want oysters, possibly coming from Richborough. He's going to want snails. And he's definitely going to want this sort of this liquid and this fish sauce, the high, highly flavoured food that he prefers. For myself, I'd probably make sure that there was quite a lot of fruit involved. We've got good fruits in Kent, and I'd be showing off by including the local crab apples and raspberries and things like that. In terms of meat, I know that Lullingston definitely has evidence for beef and pork, and there's some nice, nice ways that you could cook that up using Roman recipes maybe with some carrots and other vegetables in there as well. Lots of herbs, lots of herbs and, sp and spices. The Romans did like their flavouring on their food. and I think I could get some of that in there as well and enjoy myself. 
You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. This episode has been delivered to you in partnership with Coat at Home. To order your own feast that will go down in history and get a free bottle of French red or white wine with your first order over £60, go to coatathome.co.uk and use the promo code EH-RED or EH-WHITE at the checkout. Next week, we'll be back to learn more about Roman Britain as we explore the legacy of Hadrian's Wall on its 1900th anniversary. One of the most recent popular culture things that have taken inspiration from Hadrian's Wall is Game of Thrones that has got a wall at the northern edge of its empire that separates the kingdom from the wildlings, as they call them. Thanks for listening. See you next time.